If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. And on today's show, we have got arguably one of the most talented players in all professional sports of the 80s and 90s, a true icon in uh, the Cincinnati area, the southwestern Ohio area where Gareth and I grew up, and I would argue the only person to ever make those buttonless 80s baseball jerseys (laughs) actually look good. Eric Davis is on the program. Get excited. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago, and on the line with me, Seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer in our Brooklyn Bureau, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, super excited to have Eric on the show because this was the first one that you got to do with me in a while. How, mm-hmm. how kind of excited were you to uh, to dive in on some on some really interesting topics with Eric? Growing up, there was nobody bigger in Cincinnati sports, I would argue, than Eric Davis. He was just so good i did leave out the fact that when in sixth grade we went to cosi the columbus science institute uh for an overnight field trip there and every kid in the class was given a tadpole to bring home and raise as a pet that i named our tadpole my tadpole 44 magnum after Eric Davis, I love. I was thinking and, you named your tadpole Eric Davis. Of course not. Gareth, of course, names his forty-four Magnum. Or Magnum a gun, but that was Eric Davis's nickname. <laughs> Our tadpole was. I mean, we documented this through the class. Like that, that frog I said fish there. That frog lived literally for four years, <laughs> and after a while, it was like, dude, what do we do with this? Until finally, we gave it away to a pet store because they were like, oh yeah, we have like, there's a market for these things, and we were like, please take it. Like th- it's like winning the goldfish at the the county fair, and all of a sudden you get Jaws eight years later or something. Like, uh, yeah, this was like, uh, I threw a ping pong ball into a fishbowl, and now. I have like a whole terrarium full of shit. You know, what do we do? (laughs) So anyway, yeah, 44 Magnum was a big part of my life, probably after Eric Davis had ceased to be on the Cincinnati Reds. So he was a big part of our youth and growing up and getting to get on the phone with him and especially talk about cancer and him going through it while playing was pretty incredible. Yeah, so, let's let's and, unpack this for a minute because Eric Davis played for the Reds in the um you know mid late eighties. He was on the nineteen ninety World Series team, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Since you were you were there in the stands and saw his arguably his most famous moment as a pro and one of the most famous moments in modern Cincinnati sports. But the the reason we wanted to have him come on was not just to kind of talk about him as player, but him as as real inspiration for beating cancer, uh, as we've yeah. discussed on the show, uh, as we're winding down, you know, you are uh, in your ongoing treatment for cancer. And, and we thought it'd be kind of cool just to get Eric on the phone and talk about, you know, his story, you know, his his diagnosis while he was playing and then his mindset and, and for you two to kind of trade notes. So I, with that yeah. said, let me let me kind of this is probably a good time to kind of introduce you know, the ongoing offensively titled, but you approved it. No <laughs> way. It's not show. offensive. <laughs> it, 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 like this is going to be the last cancer corner and it isn't because cancer has won or anything like that. It's going to be the last cancer corner because we're winding down the show, but, um, well, let was... me, and let me cue. So let me cue up the, uh, the cancer corner theme music, which we heisted from the injury music <laughs> from Fox's NFL coverage. There you go. I still, I still will never forget when we, I still will never forget when we first introduced that. It was like, <laughs> Garrett, that's truly inspired <laughs> musical choice. So tell us how, how things are going. I mean, we've been we've had these interviews in the can for a while. We, we, you and I have been trying to get on the phone for a little bit, but it seems like your treatment has become more nuanced and complex. 
It's just um, it's been really the word I use is variable. So the the I'm two years into this at this point. You know, it, I was diagnosed. Um, well, I was admitted to the hospital on March 30th, Saturday, March 30th, 2019, and then I was diagnosed with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma probably five six days later on uh april 4th of 2019 and so like i don't know like how do you mark it as an anniversary is it a week-long anniversary is it a day what do you do and so like we're now recording this on april 3rd i guess it is brad uh let me just double check like so we're yeah it's april 3rd so like we're right in the heart of this and I'm really proud to be here two years later and doing as well as I have. Now, some days are better than others. Uh, last Thursday was a mess, and I felt terrible all day. And I felt terrible physically and emotionally and then was in tears. And I just really couldn't handle it. Or this past Monday, um, it was school vacation week here because of Easter. So Amy took the kids up to my in-laws for the week and they left at eight in the morning and she was driving back that night. I stayed in bed till four. Like I, mean, I slept like all day, but then the rest of the week I've been really good. And, you know, I wasn't able to work. I was able to do a lot of pre-pro and planning on the NCAA tournament this year, but I wasn't able to actually work the tournament which was a disappointment but it was because i've been dealing with all these variabilities on just liver levels like it, they've always got to kind of monitor what's going on with my liver because as my doctors put it you know we can be really aggressive and give you a lot of treatments as long as your liver's holding up once you start to have problems with like your bilirubin going up that's what makes you jaundiced makes you really itchy feverish exhausted your options for treatment get limited and so there's just been a lot of back and forth and so twice in the last three weeks i've been scheduled for a surgery that was going to go in and put a stent into some of my bile ducts that would allow more of the the bilirubin to flow through now what's what i would say is good news is in both those cases my bilirubin levels came down and they canceled the surgery. And Brad, it's not just that they canceled the surgery, the surgeon stepped in and said, I would not recommend giving you surgery if these are your current levels. And I have now said to that surgeon, I was like, dude, you're my guy. Like if there's a surgeon, <laughs> no, if there's a surgeon that's going to say, I don't want to cut you open. I'm rolling with you, you know, cause the, the whole joke about surgeons is, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, apparently this guy has more than a hammer in his arsenal. So I'm rolling with this guy. But it's just that we're at a point now in treatment where I've just had to try a lot of different things. And they're all different. And like they all have different side effects. We had to delay starting taping this morning because... The chemo I'm on right now has so many steroids that are involved with it. I start hiccuping all the time. That's probably not the best thing for a podcast. And I can complain about this on and on and on. But then at the same time, man, like, I'm two years into this. You know, like, I went on a date with my wife this week. Um, you know, we went to a museum together. I can watch movies. I can go for a walk. I had a friend come visit me and go get sandwiches yesterday. Like I'm not, I'm not reliable enough that you would want me scheduled to do your final four shoot right now. Excuse me. I'm not reliable enough. You'd want me to do your final four shoot right now, you know, but work's been incredible. I'm able to do what I can. And like, sadly, I've been at this long enough to see people not make it. And I'm just really fortunate to have gotten the care that I've gotten from the doctors I've had and to still be here and be having a good life. And so when I, you know, like I take a lot of inspiration from people like Eric, like Eric Davis and who have gone through this and 
One thing that somebody said at the beginning of this that has always stuck with me, and I don't mean this to be fatalistic to everybody, but it's just it's the truth. It's just that at some point we're all going to go through this. You know what I mean? Like the fact of the matter is like we're all going to draw the short straw at some point in our life. You know, we're not here forever. So when it happens for you, just try to appreciate what you've got and live as well as you can and just keep going. That's all I can say. I mean, the one thing I'll, I'll say is, you know, one of your close friends and, you know, someone who's talked to you quite a bit about this on this show and off this show, your attitude has always been really inspiring for me. Like you're someone who not only are you not morose or fatalistic about this, or you've never talked about you as victim, you know, you don't whine and complain about woe is me or, or get on the phone and lash out. But you've also managed on this show to talk quite about or talk, talk quite a bit about like the, the different emotions this experience has inspired and the at times the word you've used is like the beauty of the emotions people will show you or the things they will do for you and how you process the experience and i i think that's been fascinating to see unfold and and one of the reasons i think we've kept the show going as long as we have after your diagnosis was you know as a chronicle of the experience, you know, and as you processing yeah. it and, and, and this is something that you and your family can look back at hopefully down the line. And, and it's a, I don't want to say it's like, Hey, it's like a cancer scrapbook. That's not at all what I'm saying, but I, I think it was interesting to see you talk about the range of experience and emotions this has brought on in real time. And then to, with the benefit of hindsight, whenever you want to look back on this, you can revisit it if you choose i don't know no you, you said exactly right but look and i don't mean to put you on the spot with this but like when i was walking around with my friend yesterday talking about all i've learned about this it was like it makes me look back on so many different parts of my life and how i had, i wish i had done things differently how i wish i had been with people differently and one pr thing i mentioned in particular was like i wish i had been there more for you when your father got sick you know, like that was a different thing. We were younger. His disease was faster. But I just like I wish I had some of the wisdom now that I had had. I wish I had been some of the wisdom I had now so I could have been there more for you. And so what I would just say to anyone listening, like if someone, you know, is going through something hard, just reach out like it. Reach out as best you can. You might screw it up. You might say something stupid. As long as you end it with just, I'm thinking of you and you can reply or ignore this however you want, but I just want you to know that you are loved. That's all, that's all anybody needs who's going through something like this. You know what I mean? And they'll get back to you at their own time. They might never get back to you, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't seen or acknowledged. And so I just think that that's one of the things that I've taken with me through all this. And I think a lot of people and me in my past is that like, I've definitely done this, but just like have been scared to reach out or worried about what to say or anything like that. Like my advice to anyone is don't worry about it. Just say something. So, and Brad, I wish I had said more to you when we were younger. So <laughs> it's no. all right, man. Look, I love you, man. Uh, yeah. I feel like Amy is an extended part of the family, you know, uh, your kids. And like I said, you know, th this is ostensibly a sports podcast uh, that's not about sports. And I, th I think in a way, the only w to make a sports analogy, like I've never rooted for anyone quite as hard as I've rooted for you in this process, you know, and sometimes Thank that's you. something that we talk about and sometimes it's something that we express through bizarre gifts over text. <laughs> <laughs> uh but the, the one, can I say one last thing too that like if I've had one realization on this that I've tried to hold on to? Uh, no, sorry, we're like, out of time. Anyway, uh, no. <laughs> Dude, this podcast, which is known for its brevity, is now going to cut it off. But like the way that I've started to view life is like, I don't know, the odds are much lower for me that I'm going to live to be 80 years old and you know, get to grow old with Amy and get to have my kids. I'm going to fight like hell to do it every day. And 
the fact of the matter is with cancer treatments, you know, that possibility exists that something could pop up tomorrow and it happens. And so I proceed as if every day something's going to happen and it's going to be there for me. But it's made me view life differently as opposed to like life, something to be lived from like age one to 88. Whereas instead I just view it now more that like you live your life and you get one chunk, you get one, like you get this much time, like however much it is and just however much time that is, just make the most of it. You know what I mean? Whether it's, 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, it doesn't matter. We were talking about scores earlier, but like, just enjoy what you got. Or as Warren Zevon saying, enjoy every sandwich, but just like, you know, that's, this is what you get. And so you can, like you said earlier, you can get down, you can get morose. I've had those days, but, or you can, you know, enjoy a movie, a book, time with friends, a sandwich that you love from <clears throat> you love from down the street curl up with the kids and watch a movie and as long as you're doing more of that like there's plenty of people that i'm very confident if i died tomorrow i would have had a much more fulfilled and happy life than someone who lived to be miserable in 88 so right no regrets well look and this is why um you know we wanted to have eric on because yeah. you know, in 1997, after he had he had left the Reds, he had had some stops, I believe, in like L.A. Uh, he landed in, in Baltimore, my favorite baseball team at that time, having grown up in Baltimore and you know, before he moved to Cincinnati. Hackinger, <laughs> and and he he was di- he was having a good season, and he was diagnosed in 1997 with colon cancer in the middle of the year, and he. You know, he battled it and he came back. He actually had a home run in the postseason for the Orioles that year. Jesus um, Christ, dude. I mean, That's talk about a range insane. of experience. And and we wanted to have him on to kind of just hear from him, give a little kind of pep talk for you and um and hear about his experience. But also, Gareth, because his most famous moment as a pro was hitting the first inning home run. Was it first or second inning? First inning. First right? inning. First inning yep. home run off Dave Stewart, Dave Stewart, ace of the uh, ace of, of the, the A's. Bash Brothers A's in the 1990 World Series at Old Riverfront Stadium. Eric Davis, that was probably the coolest anyone not named Ken Griffey has looked hitting a home run. <laughs> like he it's hit for that the home Cincinnati run, Reds especially. Yeah, and he just looked like he he knew it was going to happen. Yep. And Gareth Hughes, a a young Gareth Hughes, currently I believe attending. McGuffey Foundational School. No, no, I was at that was sixth grade because if you recall, oh yeah, you have to remember Luke Hurlis was at school with us too, and he was the big A's guy because he had been from California, and so we were also in the same homeroom. Hurlis, he was right. sixth grade. You know, so, yeah, so yeah. yeah so yeah. tell me about that moment. What was that like? Well, so we were in the right field bleachers that was hit towards left center. And so, like, we kind of, like, that's the view of it, if you're picturing it. But as I recall, like, I don't know, I guess they they would have been in, they should have been in the, the, the press box behind home plate. But for whatever reason, I pictured there being, like, an outfield studio. And it looked like the ball was heat-seeking missile going to hit Tim McCarver in the outfield. And that might be my memory playing tricks on me, but, like, he got up there and I just remember my dad and we talked about in the interview, like when we went through that, those teams like lineup by lineup, my dad was like, they could win this thing, man. Like Gareth, they could win. They've got the talent to do this. And he hit that home run in the first inning. And I feel like every Reds fan knew what was going to happen in the world series. Like <laughs> honest to God, like I just feel like everybody was like, Holy shit, they're going to win the fucking world series. Um, when we got Eric on the phone, dude, he, when we, he, he crushed it, dude. He crushed that ball. Yeah. When we when we got the interview booked, I like found wire to wire the Reds commemorative video. Go Jose, Rio that is. <laughs> Go Jose, Rio that is. Shout out to Steve Shaver. Uh, I yeah. also remember game two where it's like Billy Bates, the 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 pinch runner who raced a cheetah on yep. the turf that year that summer. 
He's on third base or whatever. Or second he's base. rounding third, almost gets hit in the head with the toilet paper roll. Yeah, and Joe Oliver, Oliver swings as a line ball. It's a fair ball! <laughs> this one belongs to the Reds! It's so amazing how much those memories. Look, we're in sixth grade. It's so funny that you were in the stands. I just said, look, we've been talking about how to end the show, and we got one more interview left after this uh, that's also meaningful and in, in a different way. But I just think it's very somewhat poetic that we we end this show where we've we kind of chronicled your um you know your journey with cancer talking to a cancer survivor whom you had an an intimate view of in-person view of their you know the pinnacle of their athletic achievement it's it's fascinating also it was kind of a cruel reminder eric you know tore his kidney in game four, it was kind of sad to hear him talk about, you know, being separated from the team and the celebration. You also get to hear me ask one of my worst questions ever as I talk about, did you feel invincible before you got cancer? And he's like, bro, I had 10 surgeries by the time I had cancer. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but so, yeah, it was great to have Eric on. I think everyone's going to really enjoy I, the interview. Before you give yourself too much of, like, a beat down on that question. It's also a great insight into just being an athlete. Like what these guys go through, like by the time he got to cancer, he's like, what's another surgery here, dude? Like you've messed with my kidneys, my knees, my whatever, like take my colon. Why stop now? You know, right. like crazy. So yeah. So enjoy, sit back and enjoy Gareth and I are both on this one. Thank you to Eric for coming on. Thank you to the Reds for, um, you know, setting us up with him. Go read about his story. Uh, you know, there's some really interesting kind of retrospective articles online and, and Gareth and I, no distractions this week. Gareth and I'll be back next week or whenever I post this, uh, <laughs> with the final installment of just not sports. Stay tuned for that right now. Let's get to the man, the myth, the legend himself. Eric 44 Magnum. <laughs> 44 Magnum. So no was the murder capital. Corin is busy. Youngest keep thunder like Kevin Durant. And a fire raid on sight. If they think you were red, get birds from Atlanta like Falcons and Hawks. Because the South got it cheap. If your money you talk. Yeah, we're so glad to have you on. Uh, as I mentioned in our exchange uh, last week, you know, Gareth is. Uh, battling cancer for the second time. Uh, you know, growing up right. in the Cincinnati area, we um, have been, uh, obviously, we, we followed your career closely, and we're hoping to talk about, um, you know, your own journey, uh, you know, uh, and, and and recovery and, and thoughts on, on the process. At the same time, we are also, as Gareth just mentioned, uh, uh, Southwest Ohio kids at heart. Gareth was... Right. In the stands for what I still describe as the coolest looking home run, the coolest looking anyone's ever looked, uh, hitting yeah, a home run in the World Series. I will say that I was in, I was in the right field stands at Riverfront for Game One of the 1990 World Series. Right. You hit that laser of a home run that almost took out Tim McCarver in the center field in center field, man. And it just right. talk about a hit that just set the tone for the entire series. Like from that, I just remember going into that series and my dad went position by position through both teams and was like, I think the Reds can win this. And from the moment you hit that home run, I was 11, but I was like, Oh, I'm in like there, this is over. Right. You know, they're going to do this. Oh. And, um, so yeah, just thank you for one of the great, we had a wonderful world. squad. I mean, if you look at our team, we were, uh, probably one of the most talented teams in all of the, all of baseball, man for man. Um, mm -hmm. We had all stars. We had home run champs. We had a lot of the, the various pieces that Oakland had. Um, mm -hmm. They were they were coming off back to back to back World Series, two World Series in a row. So that was their third World Series in a row. So you know you had to give them their credit, but. You know, our pictures through perfect games. Danny Jackson should have won the Cy Young in, in, in 88 with 24 and 6. Mm -hmm. uh, our bullpen was second and none. We had power, speed. We were probably the best defensive team in all of baseball, position for position. So uh, we were a smart baseball team, and and we knew that, that just coming off of Pittsburgh series games with those guys and then facing open, we had faced – a lot of their pitchers before, so we weren't intimidated by any of those pitchers. I mean, we faced Dave Stewart when he was in the National League. So I faced him in the National mm -hmm. League. 
So if you look at all of the other guys that they had outside of a few of them, we faced those guys before, so we knew what the scenario was. They had not faced our dominant pitches before, so that's why we felt like we had the advantage. Right. So then let me ask you, how did that World Series – like we're going to get into you and being a ball player while undergoing tr- cancer treatment, but like refresh everybody, serious in- like serious time in the hospital is not foreign to you. How did that World Series end for you? So Carney Lansford hits a foul pop off the first baseline. Todd Benzinger catches it, and the series is over. Everyone gets to celebrate. Where were you when that happened? Oh, when that happened, in in retrospect, I can tell you where I was now, <laughs> 30 years ago. But uh, in, in the process, I had no idea where I was. Um, <laughs> Cause I was in ICU. I mean, I was, I was out. I, I didn't know what was, I didn't know we had wow. won for a couple of days. Uh, so, so having torn my kidney in multiple places, uh, you can imagine what that was like. Well, you can't imagine what that was. I was going to say, Eric, as we talk about it, I can imagine what cancer treatment is like. We're going to talk about that. I cannot yeah. imagine what it is like to be knocked out in the ICU in a city I don't live in with a lacerated kidney while my team is winning the World Series I've dreamt of my entire life. Yeah, I had I had an epidural in my back. I had an epidural in my back for pain for 12 days. Oof. Just so you know what I was going through out there. And um, mm-hmm. not knowing, uh, I had about 35 people in, in Oakland for the World Series that came up from L.A. My wife, my kids, everybody was there. And and the most painful thing about it was they just left and and just left everybody there, didn't check on my family, didn't see were they gonna be able to stay in a hotel, what was going to transpire. But those was more difficult uh things for me to swallow. Me as a as, as a player, I didn't I didn't really care about none of that kind of stuff because I can control my own destiny when I get back on the field. Mm-hmm. But when it happens to your loved ones and you know they're coming down there for a purpose and then I, I get sent to an emergency for 12 days and you just leave the next day, that was the most difficult part for me. I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry that was the end of that year for you because it was such a special year for so many in that area. Um, and so I'm sorry that and you were such a huge part of all those teams. I mean, the nearly like what 40 for 50 year and all that stuff. I just, um, cool. sorry, that was the end of your world series experience. So, well, I still never had a chance to celebrate. So <laughs> all the, all of the accolades that came with doing that, that, that's, that that's part of the memory of you being a champion. Yeah. The game in, in, in winning is, 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 is great, but, the jubilation that you see people have after they've won, mm-hmm. uh, the parade and all of that kind of stuff. I still don't know what that feels like. So, uh, uh, yeah, I have a World Series title and I have some uh, 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 some memories of what transpired in 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 the first three and a half games, <laughs> not four games, <laughs> but three and a quarter games. Mm-hmm. But uh, after that, I've never participated, so I can only speak by what I saw. Yep. On 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 what that feel like, Eric. At some point, you should just have someone douse you with a bottle of champagne. You know, just like <laughs> in the in the kitchen. At, at fifty eight, almost fifty nine. I'm, I'm not gonna waste a good bottle of champagne on my afro because <laughs> I don't have one. So that's why I saved it all off. So I'm not gonna waste that on that. I might well just sit around and drink it, smoke yeah. a cigar and drink it. <laughs> that's right. Hey, I I want to well transition done. to um, you know, obviously what happened with your own. Um, you know, journey with cancer. The, the last question I'll ask you about the, those old Reds days. You gunned down Bobby Bonilla in that at third base in that NLCS. Do you think that entitles you to some of the money the Mets are still paying him today um, with that ridiculous contract of his? <laughs> no, uh, had Pittsburgh gave it to him, I would have said yes. Yeah. But, but he had so long <laughs> left there. And uh, they went to the Mets, and the Mets gave him their papers. So, you know, you owe the man, you got to pay the man. <laughs> yep. Well, look, we'll flash forward to 
you know, you, you went on after the, the Reds, you, you moved on to a few teams. You found a new home on a contender with Baltimore, uh, a team that was primed for a, a deep run. And that was the season that you, um, you, you got a cancer diagnosis during the year. I, mm-hmm. I kind of want to ask you, when did you first notice that there might be a problem and what was the process like uh, to actually uncover what was going on? Well, the first time I really noticed it, I didn't really notice it, uh, if that makes sense. I was hitting, I was hitting about 390. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I was leading the American League in a lot of offensive categories. That's a pretty good number. And I took pretty a high number. Yeah. And we came to the West Coast, and I think I took a two for thirty. And I didn't feel right taking the two for thirty. Um, but but. I was swinging good. I was lying involved, but they just wasn't going anywhere. <clears throat> so, so I didn't put two and two together that I was starting to fatigue in my body, in my torque. Uh, knowing what I know now, that that was one of the, uh, the, the only symptoms that I did have. I didn't have any bleeding or anything in, in, in my colon, but I felt, I didn't feel as strong all of a sudden. And then uh, when we got to Cleveland, I, I scored on a sacrifice fly and kind of uh, got entangled with the catcher and made a hard slide and things like that. So after the third out, I couldn't get up. The pain just hit me just like that. So in retrospect, I didn't really have anything uh, uh, off the field-wise where you can say, well, you know, I... I, I I was bleeding or or my head was hurting and then I went and no, I didn't get none of that. I just felt like like my game I, I didn't feel as strong as I had felt leading up to that road trip. So I don't know what transpired in between that um time and then me being diagnosed in in in, in June. Or, or me going out of the game in uh, Cleveland, I didn't really have anything outside of fatigue that I felt was the factor. You know, being an, a, an athlete, a high performer, I mean, you and look, you were one of the few people that made those like buttonless 80s jerseys actually look good. I mean, you were, you were in great shape. <laughs> um, yeah. You must, I'm sure, have that sort of feeling of invincibility to a certain degree or, or at least like impenetrability, like, Hey, the, the, my body's not going to turn on me. I, I keep it in, 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 in prime condition. Okay, let me just say this though. Let me just say this. And, and, and I hear this all the time. There's not a player alive who feel invincible. Right. When you can in a game, the game is, 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 is your cape if you want to call us superheroes or whatever you want to call us. And, and to be able to, to play at a high level in, in any sport that you're the, you, you're considered the best in the world, your mindset has to be so high that I believe I can do anything without killing myself. I can run through this wall. I can make this block. I can jump over three people. That's just your competitive nature. So that when people say you feel like you're invincible or you feel like nothing can happen to you, that's, that's totally false. Because prior to that, I, I, I've had 12 surgeries. <laughs> so I don't right, know any right. superhero that's had 12 surgeries. Huh. So it's, it's a lot of the myth of, 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 of the confidence that athletes have to have. You have to have a certain amount of I can, I can, I can. But it doesn't mean like I believe I can run through this damn brick wall and ain't nothing gonna happen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Yeah. No. I, Eric, in, in researching some of this and reading back up about you, I was struck by a couple things mentioned, and I think you were ahead of your time in talking about this. That you were an athlete that talked a lot about the ego that it took to be an athlete, and I've talked about it over the years working in sports and interviewing hundreds of athletes that like. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, Pedro Martinez has to have an ego. He's going to stand on a mound in the middle of Yankee Stadium and look into their dugout and 40,000 people and say, I'm going to strike every one of you MFers out, you know? Mm-hmm. And if he, if he gets up a home run, 
he has to say, you got me that time. I'm going to strike you out to the next guy. You know, you got to have a short memory and you got to have absolutely an intrinsic belief in your ability to compete. That said, when cancer comes along, it's such a different, it puts you in such a different mindset. So like, how did you react when you first got that diagnosis, both from a personal standpoint and an athletic standpoint? Well, um, from a personal standpoint, I was relieved. And I say that because I was misdiagnosed for a whole week. I was in the university when I took the train from New York back to Baltimore and and they picked me up and took me to University of Maryland Hospital because I was in such pain in New York after playing a day game. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind you, this was three days after I had first felt it in Cleveland and I played the next two games in New York. And yep. so wow. after that wow. day game, I was, I was in such pain that I called the trainer and they put me on the train. I didn't have time to get to the airport or anything like that. So they put me on the train from New York to Baltimore. That was the quickest mm-hmm. way to get me back to Baltimore. Yep. So the ambulance and everybody picks me up from the train and they take me to University of Maryland Hospital. I was, I was diagnosed with having an abscess in my stomach. But, but the the point of, of of my diagnosis was no one can tell me how it got there. So they tried to drain it with a catheter overnight. They did a lot of shit, excuse me for saying that, that they shouldn't have done at this particular Dude, you can, hospital. You can swear about cancer as much as you want. I, nothing <laughs> yeah. I haven't said before either. But, so. but cancer, if the, it, it could... If they could have easily done something to where the, the, the cancer could have spread it all over my body and I died by them trying to drain it. Right. You know what I mean? So, so okay. having put the catheter in and trying to drain it for 24 hours and then some of it drained out and, and, and they still saw this mass or whatever they saw, but they couldn't tell me. So everybody at this hospital came down to my room and I'm asking a question. Well, can someone tell me how did this get there? And could nobody tell it. Luckily for me that my publicist lived in DC and she told me to leave that hospital and go to John Hopkins, which is right across town. Having said that, I did that. Okay. And the first thing he did for me was a colonoscopy. Hmm. The, the very first thing Dr. Lillimo did to me when I got to John Hopkins was a colonoscopy. He said, did you ever have a colonoscopy? I said, no. He said, well, that's, I'm going to do this to rule out thing. Mind you, I'm in University of Maryland for eight days, and they didn't even consider a colonoscopy. Wow. Hmm. Everything but a colonoscopy. Mm. So he told me that I had a, a a tumor the size of a grapefruit, and he had to go get it. Yo, I that's what I have in my liver. I'm working on shrinking a tumor the size of a grapefruit. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, good work, grapefruit club. All right. Um, <laughs> I think you like the Reds were part of the grapefruit league, not the cactus league, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, damn right. So yeah, okay, Eric, here we go. Eric, what's truly remarkable is you came back that season. I mean, you hit a home, a game-winning home run in the postseason. Like, I mean, you, you, it's truly yeah. a remarkable story. What What do you talk about when you talk about the beyond the physical journey? And I think you alluded to this before the, the mental journey of of having this this major diagnosis. And then, how would you describe what made the difference for you to uh, you know to recover? to the degree that you did. And, and, the, and the following season, you had one of your best all-around uh, statistical yeah. years overall. So it was truly a remarkable story. Mentally, it wasn't difficult at all. Um, because the first mental, and this was the, the toughest thing for me, is not knowing what was wrong. See, when you break up, Ankle, the first thing I tell you, you broke your ankle or, or, or you need a hip replacement. When they're telling you they have no idea what's wrong, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That's, 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 that is 
the most tenuous thing that someone can tell you when you in ICU and they're telling you we don't know what's wrong. Or they can't tell you something. When the best of the best can't tell you something, that's a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> there is no more anxiety than that. I agree. I also think that we have a reputation of doctors as all being like Dr. House. And they're like these swashbuckling guys that can tell you the truth. I'm like, give it to him straight, Doc. And it's like, you got this. And here are your odds. You're going to live two years. And I can tell you what's hard right to your face. I, I, I found that, too. I thought in my initial diagnosis, they leaned toward cancer pretty quick for me. So I didn't experience that with you of days of uncertainty. Yeah. But I did yeah. find that doctors had a hard time talking about it to me, had a hard time articulating it. And there was one doctor in particular that, like, he was like, why don't you go get this test? I'm for sure that it's going to show you have an infection, not cancer. And I was like, you know, doc, don't say for sure. Like, give yourself an out, you know, head. Sure, you know? sure, um, sure, sure. And when, when he, it turned out he was wrong, I never saw him again. Like, he never came mm -hmm. back to my mm -hmm. room. And it's like, dude, I don't care that you got something wrong, but just own it and then work on fixing the problem. Like, that's all. Sure. I Absolutely. So I was really struck by reading that from you and now hearing it that you. So when I got to that doctor and he told me what it was, and was like, yeah, hey, we got to go get this. That was like a big sigh of relief. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? That was like, okay, at least somebody know and he's taking action on it. So mm -hmm. all of that was, was, was easy. That was like me saying, him me. And me going through and saying, hey, man, did, okay, we diagnosed you with a meter collateral. We got to go fix it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, so you're going to go fix it, and then we're going to do rehab? I'm fine with that. That's, that was my attitude. Mm -hmm. Even it, even after I had surgery and they told me they got all of it, they said they wanted me to take chemo. I said, why? <laughs> you know, if you got it all, what the hell I need to take chemo for? So that was my mindset. Like I'm, I'm, I'm fine. As soon as my stitches heal up, I'm ready to go. That was my mindset. Yep. But then when he asked me to get a second opinion, and and then I got a third opinion from a a, a specialist up in New York, the same guy who operated on Bill Strawberry a year later, and then I had a, a a third opinion from my doctor out of UCLA. And it was all the same analysis was based on my age and the size of my tumor. That's all it was. It was like, you're 34 years old and you have mm -hmm. a tumor size of a grapefruit. And historically, colorectal cancer is, is an elderly white man's disease, not a young black man's disease. And I wasn't elderly, nor was I white. So I was like, okay, this <laughs> let me double sense. Hold on. I have to double check the facts on that one. So just... Let me run that through before we go on. Okay, okay, we're good to proceed. Yeah, go on. Yeah, so yeah. I'm saying, oh, oh, okay, so it must be something to this, so let me go ahead and uh, do the chemo. So I did 32 weeks of chemo. Uh, Eric Anthony, who used to play with the Reds, his wife uh, is an herbalist down in Houston, Texas, and I, I've been knowing them for my whole life, and she grew up in L.A., and mm -hmm. she's an herbalist and stuff, so she fixed me some teas and stuff, and I drank them, and 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 they, the chemo didn't bother me. I would feel a certain way the day I took chemo, but, but after that, it, it was like, I actually ate while I was taking chemo. Hmm. Huh. I, would, I would eat a club, a, a, a club sandwich and salad and drink a Pepsi while I was watching a movie for two hours taking chemo. Well, I'll say this. I ate while getting chemo. To me, the day you get chemo isn't bad. The next day wasn't even bad for me. It was two days later and then the day after. But I, I like I'm currently on a daily pill chemotherapy. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I found that like going in for was your chemo every week or like every other week? Like what was the yeah, once a week for 32 weeks? Got it. So I was on every other week. And what I found was, and I told my, doc, my oncologist this, like, regular chemo is rough, but you get into the rhythm of it. To me, taking daily stuff is far worse. Like, I'd rather go in for chemo 
know that you're going to have a well, yes, because you got to deal with it every day. You got to deal with how yeah. am I going to feel after this pill every day. So I, uh-huh. I agree with that. And and yep. and see, chemo is just straight poison. Let's tell you what it is. It's sitting there to eat up shit. It ain't in there to soothe nothing to be friends with nobody. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like you in here. I'm 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 tearing your ass up if you in here. Because we got to rectify everything in here. If, if you ain't supposed yeah. to be in here, we get you. That's the mindset of chemo. I, I talked to a cancer survivor when I was, I was about to first start. And somebody had said, you need to be on this diet and don't eat this or do that. And this friend of mine, she just said to me, she's like, you know, eat whatever you can get down. Because there is nothing yes. more poisonous you are putting in your body right. than that chemotherapy. Right. Right. So, right. so having done that, but what... The the herbs that she gave, she gave me seven different herbs that my wife brewed on the stove. Hmm. And I drank it every day. But what it did was it put back the nutrients in my body that the chemo was eating up. Because the reason most people get sick with chemo is that you can't hold anything down. Right. And, and it's constantly eating up all the good cells and stuff. So now you feel terrible. Mm-hmm. And and so that was allowing me not to feel. T- I never threw up after chemo. I never done any of those things. Wow. And and so, but the day I took it, I would be zapped. Right and after that, that's why even when I came back to play, I never played the day I took chemo. I played the next day, mm-hmm. but it was nothing that was preventing me from. Everybody thought I was a superhero once again, but I felt normal. So why wouldn't I play if I feel normal? I didn't. I didn't right. take an injection to play. Or 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 do something where blood was coming out of my sock or some shit. You know what I'm saying? I didn't do none of that. Yeah, I yeah. felt fine. So me being praised for feeling fine and playing, I never looked into that because I was it, it, it was nothing that was preventing me from playing. Can I ask too? Like I we just got I worked for CBS Sports on my day job, and we just got through working on the Super Bowl, and like. I worked my buns off and all these people were like, wow, what you're doing is so impressive. And I was like, look, I don't want to be a mascot. I don't want to be anybody's like, I just want to work hard and do my job. But what I did say, and my wife was like, you have to keep working because it, it offers you such an outlet for energy. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. It, and, and the work I did meant the world to me. And I, I loved that outlet. Would you say the same thing happened to you for baseball? And that's what helped your performance. Like it's a way to not sit around thinking about your colon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, something even more to that. Have everybody in the world told you, you can't go to work. And and then you found a way to get up and go to work. And now that's a super, super, super something. Because all Mm -hmm. the odds was against you to go to work. And you found whatever you needed to find to get to work. That wasn't my case. Well, but also, as you talked about as being an athlete, like, from an ego point of view, that means something. Like, oh, you're worried about me and this and that. I'm going to show you how it's done. You know what I mean? Like, watch me. Not even that. Not for me. But, But see, once I was taking chemo and I started to work out, right, Mm -hmm. because I couldn't work out until my stitches healed. Mm-hmm. just like a normal surgeon. So once I, if he told me I could work out, then I started doing what I normally do. I started practicing baseball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was real simple. So you've done your whole but, life. Right. But he never said, you can't play again. <laughs> Nobody ever told me, your career is over, Eric. You have colon cancer. You won't be able to play anymore. Mm-hmm. So that never entered my mind that I wouldn't be able to play anymore. So once I started playing and and I felt good and it was time to come back, uh, it was like it was nothing that was going to prevent me from coming back. And like I'm saying, I didn't I didn't have a setback in my rotator cuff where I couldn't throw or 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 I blew out my knee again or or something where I couldn't physically do it. Right. Physically, it was nothing wrong with me. Physically, it was a matter if I was mentally ready to play. And, and that's the point that I want people to know. The physical side of, of what I did, it was nothing to, to prevent me from doing it. To close out, 
what is the advice that you get? I mean, this is, again, you had an amazing career, so many awesome memories in sports, but also being a cancer survivor, I'm sure you're an inspiration to others for, um, for, for that part of your journey as well. Is there any advice you give to people who maybe get a diagnosis and, and, and start that journey for themselves? Yeah, life is about obstacles. And how do we approach obstacles? Do we take a long road around them and, and try to alleviate them? Or do we work our way in, in order to get over that hump? And, and if, you, if you feel like you can't get over that hump, then you're not believing in everything that you was before you was even presented with that ob- obstacle. And, and, and obstacles is just a bump in the road. And, and, and anytime that you come to a bump in the road, you have options of how you want to attack that bump. As long as you stay positive, you can attack any obstacle. You just have to believe. I love it. Love it. Like a friend of mine who has her own health problems, she said to me when I first got diagnosed, she was like, Gareth, you can't go around this. You can't go over it. You just got to go through this. Mm -hmm. And it's the exact same advice. And I, I thank you for sharing it with me and all of our listeners. And um, I can just say that from my experience, you're 100% right. So if anyone's listening who's going through something like this, you know, you just got to find the joy and strength where you can and get through it. I'm, uh, Eric Davis uh, is giving you the truth here, everybody. Um, and Eric, one last thing. I promised my sister yeah. I would do this. Uh, we used to have a hookup. Mostly we were sitting where we were for the World Series up in the bleachers, but we used to have the occasional hookup for great seats once a year near uh-huh. the players' families. And my mm-hmm. my younger sister, who is, I think, a couple of years or about a year older than one of your daughters or your daughter, uh, uh-huh. ended up sitting next to her at a game and was invited to her birthday party. I just wanted oh, okay. to know if you have any of those birthday party details from like 1989 and if my sister could sw- still swing by I so I do have the pictures because my wife <laughs> keeps every picture in the world when it comes to my girls so nice. I, I can say I do have them <laughs> yes I do <laughs> well, well I'm sorry good. we missed that birthday party but uh, she was because my old uh, actually that was my oldest daughter because then my youngest daughter was born in July 1990, so she wouldn't have had a party then. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, it would have been your oldest, but yeah. So my sister, Erica. She was very, uh-huh. Erica was very sweet and invited my sister to her birthday party. So sorry we couldn't nice. make it. Ah uh, oh, man, I thought y'all was gonna be on one of the pictures that I was able to see. I was gonna be able to <laughs> nah, put y'all nah. on Facebook, man. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it was just it was sweet, and it's part of a. Uh, you know, it's kind of part of our family lore along with those right. teams from that era. And, gotcha. you know, the role you played in all of our lives is kind of being the face of those teams. So thank you for sharing. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you guys, man. Yeah. And good luck to you, man. Keep you in the prayers. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that.